What a win this would be. The Blue Jays got seven in the bottom of the sixth to take a two run lead. It's down to one right now. And he got him. A.J. Cole strikes him out. And the Blue Jays come back from a seven to nothing first inning deficit to win the game and sweep the doubleheader. Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Friday, August 21st. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers today are Kristen Ryan and Mike Tassoni working the video. And because we have video, Ben, I can see in the background that you have a scorecard framed behind you. Please tell me the story. What scorecard? What game is that from? Well, it's funny you ask. You were sitting beside, well, I, I guess for, this would apply for a lot of games because you, Shy, and I typically sit together um, when we're actually at, at the ballpark. But, what a um, rare occurrence for yeah, you yeah. sitting beside you at the ballpark. Um, but yeah, this was, uh, this was, we were in the third row of the press box behind home plate at Rogers Center in October 2015. Joey Bats. Wow. Joey Bats taking. So that's uh, a game Sam five Dyson. score. That's, that's your right. scorecard from game five. Yeah, that's right. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, kind of cool, and it's beside my sister's art. Um, oh, so that's nice. the that's the more important one. Um, is my sister Eve's uh, art right there? So very cool. Huge. You need the the bookcases behind you is what everybody has, right? Like bookcases with like the books, because obviously all of us, you know, high pollutant sports journalists are very well read, and then also like weird like figurines and bobbleheads. Like just so that everyone knows that like at no point in any of our lives are we ever like anything close to uh, cool or popular. Right. I've, I've never been a big bobblehead person. No. You know, I love baseball cards. Like I definitely have a weakness for baseball cards and baseball books. Bobbleheads aren't really my thing. Well, when they would give them away at the games, back when we used to like go to baseball games, remember those days? They'd give us these bobbleheads and I'd come home with them. I'd be like, I don't, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And But like immediately there would be texts from like five people being like, hey, can I get that bobblehead? Like, yeah. hey, did they give you a bobblehead? Like people get very weird about bobbleheads. I don't really understand it. All giveaways. I mean, it's, they're, the Jays used to have some some pretty fun. Like the Buck Martinez get up ball alarm clock is pretty good. Right. But, the, you know, some of the giveaways are legitimately creative. Others are a bit more forgettable. What do you think happened to all that stuff this year? Landfill? No, I think they're using them next year because they, oh, they, really? had, the, they had the promotional calendar, which you can, you can look up, of course. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they've just basically <laughs> pushed, <laughs> pushed them to 2021. They just rolled so, it over? Yeah, why that's not? Nice. You take a little line out of the old balance sheet there, right? Like that's a little cost savings there. Nothing wrong with that. Maybe that'll help pay the freight on a, you know, some sort of seventh inning reliever this offseason or something. That's right. Although the way the Blue Jays bullpen is going, they've got they've got all kinds of relievers. Oh. It's kind of impressive. Yeah, what a segue. I'd love to talk about that. I think we'll get to it later on in the podcast, but we should start off with like the I don't want to call it a roller coaster. It's so cliche to say it's a roller coaster. Like the uh What's something that like just goes up and down and oscillates crazily? You know, it's like a bird. elevator. Yeah, but like not to this. Like if you were on an <laughs> elevator that went like the Blue Jays season, you would be like, you know, saying your last words. Like it's, right. your, your life is over. It's like a bird that just like up and down and all over the place. You don't know where it's going to go. Uh, Blue Jays lose two tough games to the Tampa Bay Rays. Bo Bichette goes down to injury and they're like four games under 500. And it's like, okay, like, is this over? Like, wow, like this is horrific what's happening and here we sit like four days later essentially five games later because blue jays play a double header they won all five of them they've had walk-offs and ridiculous seven run comebacks and i mean it's not that long ago the people were like shoveling dirt onto like the casket of this season and now suddenly you're just like scraping it away and, and bringing up the casket because the body is alive <laughs> yeah it's it's wild it really is it's uh you know, as as we record this, and you know, we kind of have to set this in time a little bit, just because everything changes so quickly this season. When you're playing more than one game per day on average, um, as the Toronto Blue Jays and so many other teams are, but they're in playoff position, and it's just it's hard to fathom after the way they started this season, after the way they played last year, after the months and months of uncertainty and back and forth about where they were going to play, would they even play at all? And now they're 12 and 11, a modest record, but a respectable one. And they're in playoff position. Like it's, it's crazy. And it sets up a really interesting 
next month and a half for the Blue Jays on a lot of different levels. Um, they're going to have to overcome a lot of adversity in the form of injuries, in the form of a tough schedule. But they're in playoff position right now. That's, that's something. They are undeniably in playoff position to go and play one of the top two teams in the American League in their ballpark, three home games, needing to win two of them on the road so like as amazing as it would be if the blue jays like reached the postseason which obviously fans would be excited about everybody in the city would be excited about it's the sort of thing that could be over very very quick if you like ran into the rays or the yankees or you know say like oakland or minnesota or whoever it might be like it could be two games and done like it could and especially like if you had you know uh you, you, a game at 7 p.m the one night and then like you know one or 4 p.m the next day like <laughs> within the span of like 30 hours this postseason run could be done but that's what the blue jays are, are putting themselves in position for like fighting with the the texas rangers of all people like the if you look at the standings like i didn't even realize how poor the angels have been like i thought that they would have been a lot better but like they their record is you know they are looking at eight and 18 right now it's the same record as the boston red sox like those two teams have just fallen off the face of the earth the baltimore orioles and kansas city royals are in better position to contend with the blue jays right now record wise we'll see how things develop going forward but it is like not at all an exaggeration or um you know some sort of hyperbole to say the toronto blue jays are like in good position to qualify for the postseason as we stand here today with like somewhere between 35 to 36 37 games left in the season yeah there's there's a bit more than a month to go in the season and they're objectively speaking likely to make the playoffs so it's <laughs> wild i mean it's it's some teams you look at the red sox and angels like you mentioned they have cost themselves the chance to make the playoffs in all likelihood the blue jays for a while looked to be doing that to themselves with some very poor defense and some very questionable hitting at the beginning of the year. Now, they have very clearly avoided that you know early season disaster where they have just played themselves out of contention. Now, they still, you know, they, they have some injuries to overcome. They by no means have any assurances or guarantees. And, you know, are, are they going to keep getting the caliber of pitching that they have? That's an open question. I mean, there's no guarantee of that, but it's become really entertaining. It's become really interesting to see what they're going to do. I mean, the Blue Jays as buyers, that's kind of an interesting possibility to consider for the next, you know, 10 days before the trade deadline. It adds up to really a pretty compelling finish to the season. We have to almost like put the Fangrass playoff odds in the back pocket for a little bit at least, because if you had looked at them on uh, Monday morning, you would have seen the Blue Jays at like 20%. And if you look at them now on Friday morning, as we sit here, Ben, they're like over 50%. So it's that type of like variation and oscillation and just volatility in this season is like what's so insane about it and what makes it kind of so hard to uh, not only like, you know, believe what you are seeing or like try to create some sort of like try to like evaluate what you are seeing but also to try to figure out what's going to happen going forward who knows blue jays like are just they're going to the trot this weekend dude like they could lose four and we could be sitting here next week having a vastly different conversation after that like don't forget this is still a team that has struggled defensively has made some really brutal errors not only defensively, but also on the base paths, a team that was having trouble coming up with a big hit for a while, having trouble getting on base, like a team that was having some rough bullpen outings that cost them games earlier on in this season. Everything looks great right now, but like as is always the case with baseball, you're probably never as good as you look when you're hot and you're probably never as bad as you look when you're cold. Like you probably end up somewhere in the middle and the Blue Jays at 12 and 11 with a plus one run differential are essentially right in the middle right now. So can they stay there throughout the rest of the season or do they get more of the valleys and the peaks over the rest of the season or vice versa? I don't know. And I don't know how to predict that. And I probably can't predict that. So I'm probably just going to keep riding the roller coaster like everybody else. It's all you can do. And it's, it is fun. It's novel too to have a blue chase team that's contending after a few years where they really were not contending. They were totally out of it, just disappointing, falling short of expectations. This year, I don't think that anyone's assuming they're going to make the playoffs. But even if they can contend, even if they can 
hold their own and keep things interesting for the next six weeks. I think that really would be in a lot of ways, uh, you know, at the very least interesting. I think the players would be disappointed, but I think in a lot of ways that would represent a successful season um, for this team, even though they are, you know, as you were kind of hinting at there, they, they are a flawed team. Like they're not a great defensive team. There is, you know, I think when you look at Trent Thornton and Tanner Roark and Chase Anderson at the back of that rotation, even Nate Pearson, who, who we'll get to, and obviously he's sidelined now, this rotation is, is a little suspect. Like there's, there's clear room for improvement there. And as much as guys like Grichuk and Teoscar have shown improvement offensively, are we sure that they're going to continue at this pace? So you're looking at a team that to me is more, you know, mediocre than dynastic, but I think mediocre is probably good enough to, or it definitely is good enough to keep you in that conversation. And then it opens up the possibility of winning a short series, going on a long run of contention, keeping things really interesting over the course of the stretch run. Just imagine if the Blue Jays had like won a couple of those very winnable games that they had earlier on this season and a couple of ones where people were like hitting their heads. Like, how did that get away? You were up going into the eighth. You were tied going into the ninth. You you know, this, that, and the other. Things could look so much different right now. Uh, but you make a good point. This is an offense right now that is currently being carried by Randall Grichuk and Teoscar Hernandez. Two guys who look like they have made some very real adjustments. Grichuk in particular in terms of the pitches that he's not swinging at. You know, like he's still getting his strikeouts, but uh, there's been a few times over you know the last week or so where I have seen him come to the plate with runners on and he gets a first pitch breaking ball because that is probably the scouting report on Randall Grichuk. Is it like, hey, with runners on, this guy's in swing mode. He's going to chase these pitches as he likely has throughout his career. Difference this year is he's not chasing those pitches and he's getting ahead in counts and he's forcing pitchers to come into him. And the one thing Randall Grichuk has shown throughout his career is that if you throw him a pitch to hit, like he can make really good contact with that pitch and hit it at a really high rate of speed a very long way from the plate. Same thing with Teoscar Hernandez. I mean, you know, the, those approach changes like are what is allowing those guys to have the seasons that they're having. But without Bo Bichette in the lineup, without Vladimir Guerrero Jr. playing to his potential, without Lourdes Guerrero Jr. playing to his potential to this point in the season, you got to rely on those guys to carry your offense at this point. And you know their track records and their histories suggest that there could be a slump coming. You know, these are two guys who have been up and down throughout their careers. Have they made adjustments that are going to allow them to be more consistent, more productive going forward? Blue Jays hope, they hope, and they've certainly shown those adjustments to this point. But uh, I think the Blue Jays are going to need a, a little bit more depth to their lineup beyond just those two producing if they're going to be successful going forward. No doubt. And with Bichette sidelined, you lose arguably your your best hitter you know certainly one of your best hitters in the lineup so that's a big blow and when you look at Santiago Espinal or Joe Panic or Brandon Drury Espinal has had a couple nice games for sure and I think he deserves a little bit of a look there Um, but you're not going to get anything resembling that kind of offense or defense for that matter from those guys I mean that's a huge downgrade and at this point as we record this it's not really clear how long Bichette will be sidelined and you know, I don't know about you, Arden. To me, when I'm looking at this team and I'm thinking an extended period with, you know, a rookie in Espinal or Panic or Drury, that's a weak spot on this ball club right now. Absolutely. So what would you do? Would you go into the trade deadline and look to trade for a bat and look to supplement there? Or do you look to just kind of paper over with what you have now until you hope Bo Bichette's ready to come back, I don't know, sometime mid-September? Yeah, I, to me personally, I would wait and try to paper it over. I think it's it's tricky. You're not gonna you're not gonna go out there and try to acquire you know a big time shortstop. I'm not sure that the shortstops who would be available would represent huge upgrades over a guy like Espinal to begin with. So I think you you wait and and just try to make the most of it and hope that you know Espinal goes on one of those. Like you remember the hot streak that Ryan Goins had at the end of the 2015 season. And maybe that's asking like too much, but just for him to have like the occasional game where he's just contributing he gets a couple big hits he draws a couple big walks I mean no one's expecting him to hit like Boba Shett but if he can give them you know like let's say an 85 OPS plus I think they would take that Ryan Goins bar is a is a high one to set 
my friend. So then you think that, like, do you think the Blue Jays know what they want to do going into the trade deadline? Like, we're, we're sitting here, like, you know, I don't know, 10 days away, essentially. Do you think the Blue Jays have an idea of whether they want to supplement right now or of whether they have to think about moving some expiring contracts, try to flip them for futures? We'll start with what Ross Atkins said uh, the other day when he was talking to us on a, on a Zoom call. And he said the Blue Jays hope to add, they hope to supplement, and that makes sense. Now, if they go two and six in the next week, they're not going to be adding. I mean, I think that's pretty safe to say that would change things. So when the Blue Jays say they hope to add, they hope to play well enough to justify adding. And right. so if they go four and three and they find themselves, I guess that would be 16 and 14 at the, you know, in a week's time, then absolutely you're going to look to make some sort of addition. And I think when you look at this team, you know, the one spot that Atkins mentioned is, you know, and of course the Blue Jays are going to be open-minded. They're going to be flexible. They're not going to rule anything out at any position, but the one area that Atkins mentioned was starting pitching. And I think when you look at Thornton, when you look at, you know, Rorick hasn't looked great, you know, and it's not to say that he can't bounce back just in the same way that Hyunjin Ryu did after some, some difficult starts, but there is room for improvement at the back of that rotation always, um, especially when you're playing so many games in a small period of time. So that makes sense to me though. And, you know, I, I wonder where you land on this as well, but to me, Really, I think there's room for a bench bat. When you have Billy McKinney, Brandon Drury, Joe Panic on the bench getting somewhat regular at-bats, you've got a big bench, you've got a big roster. To me, there's, there's room to add someone who can give you, you know, just a platoon bat, not someone who's going to re- require a huge return in prospects, but someone who can give you a quality veteran at-bat, provide some power against pitchers from, you know, e- either a lefty masher or a righty masher. That's one of the things that I would be looking to do at the deadline. I agree with you because it's not coming from within really like there's nobody at the alternate training site who's going to show up and like give you a bunch of pop you know give you some thump off the bench and so yeah I do think that that is like something the Blue Jays would would need to look at like I think their bullpen is fine I think anytime that you can add a starting pitcher like you have to look at that just because of the nature of starting pitching and how valuable that is in today's game um it'll be interesting to like kind of see what would be available out there if there's you know like a kevin gossman would be like available or an alex cobb or someone like that or if the blue jays would be interested in those guys over their current internal candidates like a julian merriweather like those guys are in the bullpen even like a hatch and a k for them to like build back up to a starter's workload at this point like it's just not gonna happen i don't think like i still think there's enough runway there to get those guys up to that type of length so unless you're you know if you're happy with just continuing to like piggyback with guys going forward like that's one thing or you could look to go out and try to acquire somebody who can actually go like six innings which is not something that we've seen too often from the from the Blue Jays starting rotation this year like I think that this like this weekend series in Tampa really is going to be instructive because like look like it's one thing to you know like beat up on the Orioles like you should beat up on the Orioles for like as well as Baltimore has played to this point like it's absurd considering like their true talent and considering like who they're running out there every day and looking at their pitching staff uh you know it was like similar with like Miami right when we were talking about after the Blue Jays played their games against them it was like you should beat Miami like this is a team you should be beating they are like made up presently of players who would not have been in the big leagues if not for a COVID outbreak inside that clubhouse so Go into Tampa, go to the Trop, and see how you do against them, and see how you measure up against like a real like good team in the American League, and then even into next week against Boston, which is a team that you're you know they've fallen pretty far behind at eight and eighteen, but as we've seen in this schedule, it doesn't take much for a team to get back into it. Beat up on Boston and keep them down, right? And like keep them far below beneath you in the standings. Don't let them claw games back against you. Because like if you're the Blue Jays and you see, you know, your club go in and drop like three or four to Tampa and then two of three to Boston over these next seven games, well, yeah, maybe I'm not going out and, and buying at the deadline. And like maybe I'm not really like adding to this thing. Cause remember, September is like all Yankees. They play the Yankees like 10 times in September. So like talk about the importance of that bench bat. You're going up against their bullpen. It would be really helpful to have somebody with some thump to come up like 
when, say, Joe Panic started the day at second base and you need to come in and pinch hit for, you know, pinch hit against, like, I don't know, Zach Britton or whoever's coming out of the Yankees bullpen. Chapman, yeah. Right? Like, you know, at, at a certain point, push is going to come to shove. And that's kind of like the, the weird thing about the Blue Jays schedule is like some of their toughest games don't come until after the deadline. So these next seven games should be pretty instructive as to how the Blue Jays actually approach August 31st. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, seven games, it's a significant chunk of the season. Every every time we record a podcast, it's like a, another big chunk has gone by in this season because <laughs> yeah. the, the year is so short. It's it's crazy. So, of course, they, they definitely need to, to play well. I think, you know, the Red Sox with the state of their pitching staff right now, this is a really good time to be playing them. You'd rather play them now and who knows, maybe they, they recover at some point. This probably is the time to play Boston and, and see what you can do against them. But you know, it's interesting. You mentioned some of the potential starting pitching targets. And this is this is one of the reasons that I find myself just wondering a bit more about those bench bats because there are not a lot of starting pitchers out there that are capable of, you know, going six innings on a regular basis and who, you know, fit the category of one, they're desirable, they're good starting pitchers. Two, they're available. So maybe a guy like Dylan Bundy's available, but he also has another year of control that the Angels might want to hold on to. And I think Kevin Gosman, who you mentioned, is really interesting because the Blue Jays were, I don't want to say a finalist because I'm not sure if that's the case, but they did have serious interest in Kevin Gosman at the winter meetings last year. And he ultimately signed in San Francisco. Giants are a team that's out of it right now. And Gosman's pitching great. I mean, his his strikeout to walk numbers are awesome. Um, you have to think that, that he is someone who would help a contending team. But are the Blue Jays going to be the team that pays the highest price for that? I don't know that they are. That's where I find myself looking around the league at some bats. And a final question as we kind of wrap up this topic would be, what is Nate Pearson when he returns? And from the outside looking in, like, we don't know. You know, he goes down with the elbow issue and, you know, he's been having tests and I'm sure, you know, there's an MRI in there and we haven't heard the results of that. We haven't gotten a timeline on him and we don't know if this is just like a... You know, like Trent Thornton's had elbow discomfort in the past and missed like 10 days. Ken Giles has had elbow discomfort and missed like a month. And then with Nate Pearson, there's the question of, so when he comes back, how built up is he and how long of an outing can he give you? Do you have to piggyback him? Do you even throw him out of the bullpen? Like, And also what sort of quality you're going to get from him coming back. It's the volatility of young players. Nate Pearson has best is clearly dominant. It's clearly has overpowering major league tools in his repertoire. But the Nate Pearson that we saw over the three starts before his injury could not find the zone and was not effective at the big league level because he was walking hitters. They didn't know where his fastball was going. So then he just started aiming it and grooving it on the plate. And big league hitters are going to hit that over the fence, even if you throw it 95, 96. So like the uncertainty there makes like is a pretty big factor when you look at, you know, trying to assess your starting pitching going forward for this club. No, that's right. I think Pearson as impressive as he is as a prospect and as as great as his debut was, it's kind of hard to know what to make of him because it's hard to separate, okay, what was the elbow soreness and what was, you know, just part of the learning curve for a young player. And, and certainly you look at his final start before he went on the injured list against the Orioles. And I'm watching him walk Andrew Velasquez. They're like light hitting, you know, 160 pound shortstop and, that is not a good sign. And of course, Chance Cisco, the next batter, hit a two-run home run. Same thing. He walked in the first inning. He walked a batter. I think it was Pedro Severino. Went four pitches. And it's like, this is not the way you want your top pitching prospect to attack hitters. And it's not the way he wanted to. I mean, he was telling us the day before his start, he's like, I've been giving these guys a bit too much credit. I need to be in over the, over the strike zone, just attacking hitters. And he wanted to do that, but he couldn't do it. So... Is that injury? Is that learning curve? We don't know exactly. And, and it does lead to the question of role if he can come back. And, and hopefully he can because he's a lot of fun to watch. But I'm not sure that he's a lock to return in the capacity of starting pitcher. I mean, it might be something like two innings in relief or, or the kind of same role that we've seen from Thomas Hatch or Julian Merriweather kind of bridge some gaps for the Jays. And, and if he can be effective in that role, I mean, great. Effective innings are effective innings. I don't think you have to worry too much about, you know, in a shortened season, what does this mean long-term? He's still a starter long-term, but you get what you can from him um, to the extent that it's possible to do that in a healthy and, and safe way for him in 2020. 
And you also then have to consider the stress you're putting on that elbow. Think about long-term, right? Like if there's an issue with that elbow, like right now, like you do not want to push this guy any harder than you have to in 2020 because like his real value to this franchise is like, you hope being, uh, you know, a starting pitcher at the front of your rotation, logging 150, 160, 170, 180 innings in 21, 22, and 23 is arbitration years. I mean, you know, like it, it's it's kind of funny. Like you'd you'd like there to be a reason why he couldn't find the zone with his fastball and why it was all over the place. Like you'd like it to be like a, just an easy fit. Like oh my my landing foot was like in the wrong place or you know whatever. Like you'd like there to be something that he can tweak and fix to correct that. There to be a reason it's happening because if there isn't an obvious reason it's happening, well, then it's just like, oh, I guess he's not very good. <laughs> and that's the terrible outcome, right? So you'd like that. And then it's like, oh, yeah, there is a reason that it's not happening. It's because his health, his elbow isn't super healthy, which is just kind of replacing one concern with another. So now you have to manage that, right? So it, it, like, it is a, it's a thorny spot for the Blue Jays. And like, look, like a, lot of, a lot was asked of Nate Pearson. You kind of mentioned like, the pressure that he was clearly feeling, right? And the fact that he was saying, yeah, I'm giving these hitters like, too much respect. Like he, you know, he was clearly thinking a lot out there. And we saw some of the, the reactions to some of the adversity they faced on the mound. Like He was clearly like, very passionate and very consumed and very involved in it. So I think that like, kind of a step away from the game right now probably will be a bit of a benefit just to kind of recalibrate and get out of the pressure cooker a little bit. Like You think about not only the massive expectations that he had coming in, not only in Toronto, but across the league, he essentially steps into like the number two spot in the rotation, right? Like, you know, it, it was Cy Young runner up Hunjin Ryu and then Nate Pearson, <laughs> the guy who had never thrown a big league pitch. So like he did like his entry point to the big leagues was like a pretty difficult one. And then he had that amazing first outing and it was all like, Wow, right? Uh, so that just kind of ratcheted up the expectations even further. And then obviously the three subsequent starts didn't go like anywhere near what anybody would have hoped them to. Like just the command and, you know, the the home runs that he was giving up and the walks and the amount of pitches he's throwing like through three innings. Things can like spiral really quickly in the big leagues and things aren't going your way and you aren't feeling your best and you aren't getting results that you want and you're, you know, mentally and physically going through this grind for the first time. So I do think there will be a bit of a benefit for him stepping back, but like, I can't say right now that I know what he's going to be when he returns, you know, if he's just going to step back in as a starter, if he's going to come out of the bullpen or how the Blue Jays are going to manage that, you really do have to have like a, a high level of consideration as to how you progress with them in this very, very strange season. Right. And, you know, when you think about this season, we, we kind of get caught up in the, hey, they're, they're contending and we should get caught up in that. It's, it's fun. That's, it's real. It's happening. They're contending. That's awesome. But then you look at some of the big picture items that are most important to this franchise this season, Vlad, Bo, and Pearson. And in each case, like they kind of have had setbacks, you know, compared to what the Blue Jays would have hoped for them on February 15th, when everyone's reporting to spring training, 1.0. I mean, you think about Vlad Jr., his conditioning has not necessarily been ideal, and he's shifted to a position that's lower upside, and he's not playing it that well. So I think he deserves to be cut some slack. You know, I don't, I don't think we should expect perfection from a 21-year-old, but it doesn't change the fact that he doesn't look great at first base, and he is still very much learning that position. And then you've got Pearson, who's, who's now injured, and Bichette, who's now injured. So those are pretty significant issues for this team moving forward. None of them fatal. None, none of them are totally devastating, but all worth watching. And, and certainly some, some very significant leverage points for this team and for this franchise going forward. It's all about managing the short term with the long in baseball and this year with a 60 game season and being in playoff position with Ben and I jumping on the podcast being like, they're going all the way, baby. <laughs> it, just, it is like, it, it's harder than ever, I think, for a front office to kind of manage the short term and long, particularly a team like the Toronto Blue Jays who like coming into a 162 game season this year, like probably expected to be fine, like expect to be 500 probably, I would imagine, but didn't expect to be going to the playoffs with, you know, the early original 16 playoff structure and with 162 game season everything suddenly you throw a 60 game season at them and eight team playoff and all of a sudden it's the calculus changes and all of a sudden expectations change and like the short term becomes very different you have a very different opportunity in front of you while you are still trying to manage that long term so 
plenty to discuss and consider there for the Blue Jays. Let's step away, come back, and wrap up some of the earlier topics with the Toronto Blue Jays here on At The Letters. All right, Ben, let's do the Anthony Alford discussion uh, right off the top because it is somewhat demoralizing. But I, I'm curious for your uh, for your perspective on this. Does the, the fact that Anthony Alford was designated for assignment by this club at a time when they had players like Billy McKinney and Brandon Drury on the roster who are not exactly hitting lights out and each have minor league options remaining – what does that say about Anthony Alford that the club designated him for assignment when they had the opportunity to preserve depth and preserve flexibility by optioning other players? Well, it says that they are not really believers that Anthony Alford is going to be worthy of that 40-man roster spot on an ongoing basis. And I think it's clearly not to do with his speed, and I don't think it's to do with his defense, but, you know, Buck and Dan have been talking about this on the broadcast and identifying the fact that he really has trouble with high fastballs and with fastballs in general. If, if, if you're not hitting velocity in today's game, then it's going to be hard for you to generate a lot of value as an offensive player. And that's what we have seen from Alford, not only this year, but in, in the past and, and not only in the majors, but even, you know, at AAA, it's not like he was totally crushing AAA in the same way that Derek Fisher did um, when he was at that level. So great guy. I mean, I, I think that, for all of his time in the Blue Jays organization, and he's the longest tenured player within this organization. You know, he definitely rose through the ranks very gradually and has a lot of fans within this organization as he should. And I think too, like even in recent months with Black Lives Matter and him taking a knee, and you wrote about this, Arden, but the way he kind of found his voice um, in, in the last few months and really expressed some really important messages that, you know, obviously his experiences really give him perspective um, and, and have given him you know, some obstacles and some really, really unfair moments in life. But that's the perspective that he has shared with us. And we've kind of been the beneficiaries of as people in the orbit of Anthony Alford to be able to hear from him on that has been great um, off the field, certainly. But this, this decision was made with performance between the lines in mind. Yeah, beyond what he does on the field, like that interview was uh, like, I have probably forgotten 98% of the interviews I've done in my career, but I'll never forget that interview. Like the, just the honesty and how forthright he was about racial injustice and about his experiences as a black man growing up in poverty in America was uh, like, like I, you know, um, like, I don't know. It's still, like, I, I don't have words for it. Like, it still is affecting me to this day, just some of the stories that he shared. And you're right, he found his voice over the years with the Blue Jays and he used his platform as like I believe all athletes should be to to shine light on the injustices that uh, you know black people experience every single day in the United States and also in Canada for that matter. So like I, yeah, I would hope that everybody read that piece on sports.ca and read his comments and like even in writing that piece, I basically just like transcribed the interview. You know, like I, yeah. my, I'm not in there much. Like it's mostly just Anthony because like what he said was so powerful. You know, and really needed to be said. So like yeah, I, I will never forget that. As far as just purely on the field. I mean, I, yeah, I certainly tip my hand at the way I framed that question to you. The Blue Jays could have kept Anthony Alford. Billy McKinney, I mean, if they were to option him, completely justified. He's been a guy who has been up and down. And this is a Blue Jays organization that obviously likes to preserve flexibility, likes to have, um, you know, to, to gather as much information on players as possible before they make the kind of consequential decisions such as a DFA. To me, the fact this decision came now tells me the Blue Jays have all the information they believe they need. On Anthony Alford. And it's too bad, right? Because he has been such a cool story to watch since he came into this organization under Alex Anthopoulos' reign back in like 2012, I think it was, you know, and kind of in that weird like hybrid football baseball deal where it was like, hey, we'll let you keep pursuing football. And like, by the way, like Anthony Alford is such an insanely gifted natural athlete that he played division one football <laughs> as a quarterback and then as a safety, which is like kind of absurd to be able to do that while still 
coming back um, during summers and like playing rookie ball for the Blue Jays and like trying to hit professional pitching in a completely different sport. You know, like you and I, Ben, can't even uh, relate to being able to play one sport particularly well, <laughs> let alone two at uh, some of the highest levels. So like that's just tells you like the tools that this guy has. What also tells you is the fact that Anthony Alford's been like a 90th percentile sprint speed guy, perhaps even higher throughout his time in MLB, like one of the fastest players the Toronto Blue Jays have had. He also has raw power when he's able to catch up up to pitches and when he's able to put them in play he just hasn't been able to put them in play enough and he hasn't been able to make the adjustments necessary to hit pitching at the highest levels like it's his triple a numbers are somewhat of an indictment when you look at 749 plate appearances at that level and a 700 ops for an mlb outfielder like the average league average ops is like 750 so Anthony Alford's OPS at AAA over a very large sample of 700. And look, the argument for him would be that that was a very start and stop thing. He had injuries. You know, he never really got like extended runway and extended playing time until he really, you know, find his feet and see enough of that pitching consecutively to make those adjustments and to respond to it. And I don't think that anybody would ever doubt his work ethic, like just to be able to play sports at the level that he has and be as good as he has it requires that work ethic and you will not find somebody in the Blue Jays organization who's going to say a bad thing about Anthony Alford. I think he has just unfortunately been somewhat weeded out at the highest levels of the sport, you know, and it's like, I don't know, man, maybe the the Miami Marlins or the Baltimore Orioles claim him and give him the room to play and he goes off to do great things. And I don't think anybody would be upset if that happened. Like everybody would be overjoyed and enthusiastic about that we're still talking about a guy who in four separate seasons at the big league level only has 75 plate appearances but the fact that we are like what 23 games into the blue jay season at this point and he has been given only 16 plate appearances over those 23 games kind of tells you everything you need to know about where the blue jays think he is in terms of being able to contribute to this team that's right and especially offensively right like you kind of mentioned the, the ratio of games to plate appearances this year. And that's really been the case whenever he's been in the majors with the Blue Jays. They haven't really wanted to give him at-bats. You know, if they believed in the bat, they would find a way to get him at-bats in the same way that they have for Derek Fisher, or Brandon Drury, or whoever. Tons of guys over the years. And just, they, they've never done that for Alford. So in a lot of ways, it is, I, I think he'll get a fresh start. I think he will be claimed. And I hope he gets the chance to play somewhere and the chance to prove himself in the major leagues. I think that'd be great in today's environment where teams are really seeking major league players and there's not a lot on waivers you know you don't see a lot of talent passing over the waiver wire right now because teams are optioning rather than outrighting or dfaing their guys in an attempt to preserve their own depth um so i think alford will get claimed and, and you could actually see it going one of two ways i mean if you're a contending team and you have room on your roster for uh, a defense slash pinch running specialist, especially with these extra innings rules and you know the, the need to have some weapons on your bench for certain situations. I could see a contender claiming him or I could see a, a rebuilding team like Baltimore who continues to roster some, some suspect players. You know, I could see them claiming him and saying, let's give him a shot. Let's see what he can do in the course of 150 plate appearances the rest of the way. So I hope he gets that shot. I think he will. And, uh, you know, as you said, he'll have a lot of people rooting for him uh, in Toronto. Yeah, I feel like he won't get this far in the waivers process. But could you imagine if like the New York Yankees claimed Anthony Alford and he was stealing bases off the bench for the Yankees in September? I can't imagine it. It'd be kind of cool, <laughs> I, I think. And like the Yankees right now, they've got a lot of guys injured. I mean, I guess right? that doesn't necessarily free up 40-man space. But yeah, I, I could imagine yeah. any number of scenarios. And I think he'll get claimed. And hopefully that does happen. On the other side of that, somebody who's made like some tremendous adjustments to big league pitching and like continues to make those adjustments is Kevin Biggio, who like I have, I'm just so impressed with every time I watch this guy play. And it's, you know, he doesn't get talked about as much as, you know, Teoscar and, and Grichuk and, you know, obviously Bichette when he was healthy. Cause like they are coming up with like really big hits and they are driving in a lot of these runs. 
but the runs that they are driving in are often represented by Gavin Biggio because he is getting on base at like a 370 clip and he is taking like some tremendous walks. And you like, you have to imagine like the book is out on the guy is that like, he's very patient, disciplined at the plate, like throw the guy strikes, you know, like he's probably going to, you know, take the first pitch that you throw him. Like that was the thing last year when he went through a bit of struggles that everybody's just giving him a first pitch strike down the middle. And he was just taking it and he has made the adjustment to continue getting on base and to continue like working great plate appearances and, and drawing walks. Like, you know, he has been kind of like the under, like the low key under the radar catalyst to a lot of the Blue Jays offensive success over the last week or so because he is just perpetually on base. He's been great. Like he's he's really surprised me. Um even compared to you know when he made his debut last year, my expectations for him honestly were were relatively low. And in hindsight that was a mistake. And in, in hindsight, the entire industry has underestimated Kevin Biggio for years and years now. You think <laughs> about being drafted in the fifth round in 2016 looks like a steal in hindsight for the Blue Jays. Biggio is, he is a big piece on this team and looks to be one moving forward for a long time and he just keeps getting better. So to get that guy in the fifth round, I mean, that's incredible. And he was never a top prospect coming up through the Blue Jays system, even after his big season in, I want to say, was it, was it 2018? The big double A season. Yeah, it was 2018. And it was a huge year. Double A New Hampshire. Great, great season for Biggio. But he has just sustained that and built on that in the major leagues. And you look at a guy through one month of the season, he's already put up one war. So that's, you know, that's great. Six war pace, right? For a full season. And he's doing it in such a interesting way. I mean, he really is. And we've talked about this for years on Anthem Letters. The Jays have wanted to find some sort of super utility guy who can play all over the place fill in anywhere and provide good offense. And that's what Kevin Biggio is doing. He's played already this year, his primary position of second base, which he plays well, by the way. And he's played center field, right field and left field. So defensively, (laughs) he does it all. He can play first base too. He hasn't even had to do that yet this year. He could play third if they had to put him there. I have no doubt. So you're looking at incredible defensive versatility. You're looking at a guy with a 370 on base and, and in power. He's got six home runs. But the on-base and, and the plate discipline is just so impressive to me. And, you know, this was one of our over-unders. So, you know, not to, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here because Careful. there's still there's a long way to go. Don't jinx <laughs> yourself. Careful. <laughs> but, but I have been tracking that Fangraphs page in the last couple of weeks here and, and seeing, like, which, which players chase the fewest pitches. For a while, Mike and Carlos Santana was ahead of him. And now Kevin Biggio is the number one player who is the hardest player to get to chase a pitch outside of the strike zone. And it, it tracks. I mean, for those of us who are watching every Blue Jays game, it is rare. It happens. Like, he'll, he'll chase on occasion, but it is rare. And so you just end up with this overall player who, like, defensively... Oh, and I didn't even mention on, on the base pass, this guy has never been caught stealing. So yeah. you just, like, <laughs> what a good player. What yeah. a good baseball player. He does so many things right. It's, it's really... It's been a pleasure to watch him at the major league level, and it's way better than I thought he would have been. It's not often you hear the he's your ball player analysis here on ATL. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he is. He does, he does so many things well. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned, like, so uh, Kevin Biggio is a guy who's seeing a first pitch strike in only 43.7% of his plate appearances. So that's the second best rate, like, in MLB. Like, it's still, like, astounding to me that people don't just challenge him first pitch. It's amazing to me. Um, like, you think about Lourdes Gorgil Jr. is seeing a first pitch strike in 79% of his plate appearances. <laughs> like, just the discrepancy there between, like, 43 and 79. Like, that's massive. Like, and constantly being ahead in the count, like, it just makes it easier for you as, as a hitter, right? And as you mentioned, like, when Kevin Biggio is getting to his pitch, the exit velocity is a 57th percentile. Like, some of those, like, stat cast metrics, like, aren't super impressive. The expected batting average, 32nd percentile. Expected slugging, 42nd percentile uh so it like it, it's kind of um you know bucks the the odds a little bit like what he is doing when you look at that stack cast stuff but like it is exactly what the blue jays have wanted in terms of that multi-positional threat and a guy who gets on base and you know works long plate appearances competitive plate appearances isn't an easy out and then provides a bit of additional value on the base pass too like i don't you know i guess it would be the on base tool but like i don't know that there's like one tool or one thing that kevin biggio does that like jumps off the page and that you're just like this is the big thing that he provides it's kind of like the equal of all of his parts type of deal yeah 
No, totally. And even when he makes, you know, we, we saw him make one mistake on a, on defense when he mishandled a relay throw from the outfield yeah. that did cost the Blue Jays. And it happens. I mean, you're, if you play enough games, you're going you're gonna to make some mistakes out there. But it's pretty rare. More often than not, he is someone who is in the right position, throwing to the right base. Even like little things, like I saw there was one game and a throw, which by the way, the Blue Jays catchers have not thrown out a base runner yet this year. So that's you know another reason that their defense hasn't been great. But there was a throw that skidded into center field and then Biggio was at second base with the runner. And then Biggio at that point kind of pretends that he has the ball in his glove to the base runner so the runner doesn't realize that it's gone all the way into center field and it's just those tiny little things just kind of playing that game with the base runner to make sure that they don't advance that extra base that helps the team that helps the Toronto Blue Jays and it's not that he's like the best player in baseball or even the best player on his own infield but he, he is a really good player and that's been confirmed in the last month the whole is greater than the sum of his parts perhaps similar in the Blue Jays bullpen which has been really, really good, and is put together um, with a bunch of sort of repurposed starters. You look at Anthony Kay, Thomas Hatch, Julian Merriweather, who now has materialized in the majors, like dotting 98-mile-an-hour fastballs on either side of the plate with like a curveball, a slider, and a changeup that he's going to throw as a reliever. So four pitches as a reliever, so you can like use him for one and a half, two innings. Like He can show guys different looks. He can get guys out in different ways. A certain stuff isn't happening or isn't working on that night. Or if you know you look at the scouting report and it's like, hey, these dudes love chasing sliders, then you, you can lean heavily on that, on that slider depending on the game plan. I mean, like, what a weapon to have. You know, This is why, as the Blue Jays, like, you accumulate all this starting pitching depth over the last couple of years. Because, like, obviously, you know, best case scenario is guys like Hatch and Kay and Barucki and Merriweather or, like, you know, Wagusback. They're, like, all pitching well out of your rotation and giving you a starter's workload and lots of innings and staying healthy and this, that, and the other. But it's never going to happen for all of them, you know? Like, you're happy if you get one or two guys like that. Of the rest of them, you're going to have guys who just aren't up to the standard of the major leagues and aren't able to hang there. You're going to have guys that maybe you package in trades to go and like acquire position players. And then you're going to have guys who fall into relief roles and bullpen roles and have success and thrive because their stuff is playing up. And, you know, it's like they can throw max effort over an inning and be more effective than when they're kind of holding something back in, in the gas tank to try to get through five or six. We've seen with Ryan Barucki, who's been lights out. Jordan Amano, another converted starter who now is like just like one of the best relievers in baseball suddenly like through the first 23 games of of the season here and we are seeing something similar with Hatch, Kay, Merriweather, the Blue Jays have built like a pretty good bullpen entirely from within. Yeah, it's really emerged almost uh, very quickly, I, I would say because let's dial this back a month or 5 weeks ago and I think at that point we would have said the bullpen was a huge question mark because you got Ken Giles, who of course has been gone really for the for the entire season, and there was little certainty behind Ken Giles. But you know, even the free agent acquisitions, guys like Dolis and Cole have been tremendous. But you know, more importantly for the long term health of this franchise and, and state of this pitching staff, the players, the young players, have really stepped up. And you know, those guys that you mentioned, so many of them acquired in trade. And at the time, a lot of them were kind of overlooked whether it's Merriweather, who was a player to be named at first, whether it's Thomas Hatch, who was kind of, you know, not necessarily a big prospect. Same with Anthony Kay. And now they're producing. Like, they've really been incredible as a group. I think it seems, you know, I don't want to say entirely sustainable because to say that, you know, Jordan Romano can continue doing this, I mean, that's asking a lot to say that Julian Merriweather is going to be this good. I mean, he's had one outing. So, you know, there's probably some regression coming from this group as a whole. But at the same time, if they're throwing strikes, if they're throwing in the upper 90s, if they're challenging hitters, those are the ingredients for sustained success. Now, you know, they have to stay healthy. They have to have some, some defense help them out. And the workload might become a concern at a certain point. But it's really been impressive in a way that, that does potentially hint at, at even more success to come for this group. There are good eyes for pitching in this organization is what I would say when you look at some of the players that they have gone out and acquired. You mentioned like, you know, 
Hatch, you know, even like a Wagaspak who's been like per- perfectly fine at the big league level. Nobody's expecting him to, you know, like front a rotation, but like he's been like exactly serviceable, you know, like per- like capable of pitching out of a big league bullpen. That's somebody you got for Aaron Loop. You know, Hatch comes over for like for David Phelps, you know, like, uh, you know, these are like good additions of players that are like contributing at the big league level. You even look at, you know, um, an AJ Cole. You know, Anthony Bass as well, you could throw in there on waivers for the Mariners, but like AJ Cole is like has been great <laughs> over 10 outings. Like, you know, he's allowed like a run. <laughs> this is a guy that like the Blue Jays just picked up on a minor league deal. And they've done this a few times over the last several seasons where they have like brought in kind of like journeyman, you know, reliever types on minor league deals. Like Daniel Hudson like stands out. You know, there's like a there's a few guys on that list that have like the Blue Jays have come and brought in, they've identified that these guys have talent and are capable of being effective at the big league level brought him in got him working with pete walker and matt bushman and fixed him up and got him you know pitching more to their strengths and doing things a little bit differently and turned them into capable big leaguers who either they have used to trade to acquire futures and acquire young players who are contributing now or to continue being part of you know a a blue jays pitching staff and a bullpen that looks really steady right now like there's nobody in this in in this uh bullpen right now that you're like no like nowhere near a game that matters like i think you feel fine even throwing shooting yamaguchi out right now because he's looked a lot better in his last few outings right like wilmer font looks fine like these are those would probably be like you know at the bottom of your current bullpen depth chart those two guys lag us back and you feel fine like putting them into a you know a game with like a uh, you know, a four run lead or a four run deficit or something like that. Like you don't have to wait for like double digits to, you know, throw these guys out there. You feel good about putting them in the ball game and you feel really good when you're protecting a one or two run lead and you got Jordan Romano out there striking out the world or you got like Ryan Barucki like doing his Andrew Miller impression. Oh yeah. A very convincing impression at that too. I mean, it's, he's been, he's been great. Um, I, I think, when you contrast it to where they were a year ago, then it really stands out too. And, you know, of course, like the, the most important aspect of a, a pitching staff is still the starting rotation. And so that's where those questions about Pearson are still so significant. It's where the bounce back from Ryu is huge for this team. And that's why Ross Atkins is talking about the rotation as, as a area to potentially address. But I think in today's game, the bullpen is becoming an increasingly significant part of a team just because it's absorbing more innings and more leverage innings. So having a, a good bullpen is is really important. And for especially for a contending team, you have to have a good bullpen as you prepare for the stretch run, as you prepare for a potentially a playoff series. And again, just to contrast it to where they were last year, guys like Thomas Pannone were getting starts and pitching leverage. And you just, you know, you see the 87, 88 from him You'd see the swings that hitters were taking. And now you're seeing just a better caliber of stuff from this bullpen and from this pitching staff. And it's got to be really encouraging for that team because the contrast is pretty obvious to see. And the interesting thing for me is how that develops going forward. Like kind of taking the long view with some of these starters who would have made up your AAA rotation this year. So like, you know, Hatch, K, Baraki, uh, Merriweather who are now pitching out of the bullpen and how that impacts their roles going forward, right? Because like, there's like four names right there. I'll give you Jacob Wagas back as a fifth. Not all five of those guys are going to be in the Blue Jays rotation in 2021, right? Like, so like who resumes as a starter and then who takes on a bit of a hybrid relief role? It's an absolute like best case, like super low likelihood outcome scenario but like josh Hader of the milwaukee brewers is a guy who's been one of the best relievers in baseball for the last several seasons like multiple time all-star uh you know it's been so crucial to their pitching staff he often goes two innings you know like he is a guy who was a starter throughout his minor league career he obviously has wicked stuff like he obviously like is an exceptionally talented pitcher but i it is not for nothing that like Ryan Brucky's throwing his fastball just as hard as Josh Hader this season and getting a better whiff rate with his slider. And look, that is a slow, that is a small sample, man. Like Ryan Brucky's got like eight relief appearances in his life. Josh Hader's probably got like 200, right? So that's, you know, I'm not like saying Ryan Brucky's going to be him, but if Ryan Brucky could be Seth Lugo or could be Yusmero Petit, like there's value to that. Like that's, you know, one and a half, two wins out of your bullpen, which is like, useful and that is a really interesting way of repurposing 
a former starter like a Barucki, like a Merriweather, you know, I, I think Hatch and K probably go back to starting next season. But if there isn't room for them, those guys could fit in that mold as well. We are seeing teams devise new and unique ways of kind of getting through nine innings. And it's not always going to be your starter going for seven, right? Like not that many teams have the the benefit or the luxury of like a, a Verlander and a Cole in their rotation and a Granky, right? And these guys who you can trust to get that deep into games more and more often, we are not seeing starters face that lineup a third time through. And we are seeing them exit games earlier than ever before. And you need a good arm to attack in that sixth and seventh inning and kind of get you through to your Jordan Romanos and your Ken Giles at the end of the game. I think some of these, you know, converted starters can fill that role for the Blue Jays going forward. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, you think about you mentioned those Astros starters, right? And you think about last year's World Series, which was fun, great starting pitching matchups, but in so many ways, an exception, right? Like the Astros have three Hall of Fame starters on that staff in Cole, Verlander, and Greinke. The Nationals had two, and you know, I think Strasburg has a decent chance, and obviously Scherzer's inner circle. So you're talking about five Hall of Famers, like it's, (laughs) it's just not the way most teams can operate here. So. You know, if you set your sights more at the Seth Lugo, Yusmero Petit threshold for Baraki, great. That's like phenomenal if he could, if he can be that. And if I'm the Blue Jays, you know, I'd, I think for Baraki and Merriweather in particular, just given their health history, given the need for arms, given the other options that you have emerging as starting pitchers, not just the guys in the major leagues now, but Alec Manoa coming up, you have Simeon Woods Richardson, not to, not to put too much on any one guy, but there are arms coming a little bit. I would put Baraki and Merriweather in the bullpen permanently at, you know, at this point, you know, if, if that's something that they're interested in. And, and I think, you know, I, I would imagine that Baraki, part of him might want to continue starting, man, there's a lot of money to be made pitching out of the bullpen. There's a lot of opportunity pitching out of the bullpen. Like, I think if you're in a position to contribute to almost half your team's games, you're still helping the ball club. It seems like, just watching from afar on the broadcast, it seems like Baraki's enjoying it. seems like all those guys are having a good time in the bullpen, and as they should be, because they're, they're pitching great and they're helping this team. Yeah, I, I think every pitcher still wants to be a starter because that's traditionally where the money's always been, right? But I also think that we are seeing teams approach pitching in just such a different way going forward. And I wonder if the money gets distributed a bit differently going forward as well. Think about Drew Pomerantz, right? Like he had like eight good innings with the Brewers and he signs a big deal with the Padres and he's just like, he's unreal. He's still really good. Like that was a good decision. I think teams are making decisions based on really small snippets of information. And if you have good stuff and you're getting results, then teams will buy into that. As much as we are seeing kind of like the positionless baseball on the position player side where you've got like, you know, third baseman in the shift playing in shallow right field and like catching balls in the right field corner and stuff like you're seeing like all the like the position isn't anything anymore. We are moving more and more towards like pitching staffs being similar where you get away from that. Like these are your five starters and they're your workhorses and they eat innings and log this. And then you bring this reliever out with a clean inning and like Jason Grilly pitches the eighth and only the eighth and you don't bring him in with runners on. And it's like, it's like, it's getting away from that. You're getting to points where you look at where Merriweather, Merriweather's MLB debut comes with a runner on and two out in the fifth inning. It comes in and strikes dude out goes into the dugout, sits down for like a seven batter inning and then comes back and pitches another inning. Like it is getting more and more towards that type of deployment of your, of your pitching staff after uh, in a game when like Chase Anderson threw like 78 pitches for sure. He could have gone deeper and I'm sure he would have liked to go deeper, but it just probably didn't love the matchup. Didn't, you know, didn't love him like facing the batting order for a third time and figured that they had a better chance of winning if they went to Julian Merriweather and Hey man, they won that game. Exactly. Especially, you know, if they keep this seven inning doubleheader rule going forward, I mean, then you're looking at really shortened games. You're not going to push your starter if you have a couple of relievers available. It just makes no sense. So especially this year. And, and I mean, conceivably, they might keep that rule going forward. I don't know how many doubleheaders we'll have, but it's something to keep an eye on. The seven inning doubleheader is good. It is. Oh, yeah. It is quick. If the, the Blue Jays like did not have the pitching to have like four more innings uh, on Thursday, I can tell you that much. Like if that second game had gone to extras, it was like, hey, AJ Cole, like you're throwing your arm off today because like the Blue Jays were thin. The seven inning doubleheader is good. It gets things moving. It doesn't tax pitching staffs as much. It's sort of like the, the extra innings rule as well. Like I understand that 
you know, it's tough for traditionalists, but you got to find a way to avoid these like 15, 16, 17 inning games, which are just like, not only like brutal on a pitching staff and brutal on a ball club and the arms, and it doesn't just, you know, set teams back for like a week after it, but it's brutal to watch as a fan. Nobody wants to watch a five hour, six hour baseball game. Nobody is sitting down and watching a five or six hour baseball game. Like it's just like, it's just too much. So any of these rules that are helping us kind of like avoid some of those extreme extra inning scenarios and some of the like extreme volumes of baseball that we've had to sit through in previous years, I am all for. Yeah. I I really like the extra innings rule and, you know, maybe going forward, does that kick in in the 11th and the 10th, you know, is it, maybe you have one extra inning where it's just regular rules, but I like it a lot. I just think that it instantly creates strategic decision-making and I like strategy. Like that's one of the main reasons I like baseball is just like decision points, like trade deadline. Okay. You have to make a call rule five deadline. You have to make a call. Like those decisions are interesting to me. And the the more of those that you have um, in a short period of time, the more interesting baseball is to me. Action, baby. That's what people want. They want to see action. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith. He's on Twitter at BNicholson-Smith. We want to say thanks as always to our producers, Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. My name's Arden Swelling. We will talk to you next week on At The Letters.